Hi, this is Glenn Kaiser with the Dolby Institute, and welcome to our special Oscar Contenders podcast. Uh, today's episode is featuring Ford versus Ferrari, and we're going to kick off with a great conversation that I had a couple months ago with the post-production sound team on the film. So you're going to hear from Donald Sylvester, uh, Paul Massey, and Dave Giamarco about the really extraordinary work done on the post-production side of Ford versus Ferrari. And then stick around for the special uh, second part of the conversation where we talk with production sound mixer Steve Morrow. Enjoy it. Paul, I haven't seen you since you won your Oscar for Bohemian Rhapsody. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks. It was a joy to work on, definitely. Yeah, we had a couple of fun conversations about we that did, one, yes. didn't we? <laughs> Not every, like I said, people haven't seen this movie yet. I feel very fortunate because I, I got to see it at the Telluride Film Festival, which was actually the first time that anybody saw the movie. Um, and it's, uh, I can tell you, you know, you're in for a really fun experience when you watch this movie because it's, it's just a great, kind of almost like an old-fashioned, just really entertaining movie with great characters. And of course, the thing that you can always expect uh, from a movie uh, from James Mangold is just impeccable craftsmanship. Um, all the departments in this movie are working at the top of their game. Uh, and, and the sound department is obviously no exception. Now, you guys have had a, a pretty good run with James. I think you guys have worked with him ever since it started with Walk the Line, right? Uh, back in like 2005? Yeah, I, I actually first met Jim in this room. Uh, we, he was mixing Girl Interrupted in the late 90s. And I did a little bit of work on that, but I wasn't the main mixer. And then uh, moved to Fox, and uh, yeah, I've done six films with Jim now, starting with Walk the Line. And we've all worked with him before. Me too. Yeah. I met him in 19, I mean, <laughs> 2005 um, with Walk the Line. That was my first experience. He's a, he's a pretty great guy to hit your wagon to. He knows what he wants. And uh, yeah. It's been a it's been a great experience. Uh, it, to me, it's always it's it's really exciting to to you know witness a long term collaboration between a, a director and a sound team. And I'm wondering if you guys can just talk a little bit about about you know how that work goes with Jim. How much uh, you know what kind of a presence does he have on the mixing stage? Uh, you know, is he one of those directors that's you know on the mix all day every day, or does he just come in for playbacks and say, "Oh, you guys did a great job. Thanks." <laughs> um, neither. So. <laughs> He, um, no, Jim's a delight to work with. He really, I, I mix the dialogue and music, so he gives me an awful lot of latitude in experimenting with music presentations to him. Um, and I feel like you can do this, a, a very nice sort of sparring back and forth with him in presenting ideas um, and having his input. And I always feel like at the end of a project with Jim, we've come up with something that neither one of us would have done on our own, but that he, you know, collaboratively has, has taken us to another level. Um, and he, does, he doesn't sit there and go through every single little detail with you. He'll actually go crazy if he does that. He'll pace up and down. and Every time you hit play, he'll be, yeah, but, but, but the door's too big. No, the car's too short. Oh, no. And, you know, I, you have to turn you're, around. You're like, I'm only working on one thing at a time. I know. I have to say, you know, Jim, amount of times I've said to him, please, it's going to take me like five passes to get close to where you want. Just, you know, and he's like, do you want me to leave? Yes, leave. Um, <laughs> but in a nice way. And he comes back um, and it likes to see an overall presentation and then we can take it to the next level. It's really a joy to work with. Uh, Don and David, can you talk a little bit about how you guys collaborate and work together? Because Don, you're the sound supervisor. Dave, you uh, are the sound designer and you mix the effects with Paul, right? So how do, how do you guys uh, kind of divvy things up between you? 
Well, uh, I'm embedded in the in the picture department. I think that's pretty that's pretty common now. What that means is I'm I'm in the room uh, a lot when Jim is making observations and notes, and if I'm not, I'm only a shout away, um, which is literally what happens. Dawn, and I come running, and he goes, "Here's my note. Do this. Do that. Do this. Do this. That. Thanks." And then I leave. So I have a very thick notebook of tiny little notes that I take 17 times a day. And uh, so I never miss anything because I'm always there and it's great. And he'll, he'll forget the note, but um, I won't. So uh, that's one of the great things about working so close to him. And then also he's kind of like, he, he, what he lets me do or makes me do is he wants to view a scene that's completely filled out with sound, music, Right from the from the very start, like the very first cut of the of the sh of the scene, it's going to have music and cars and sound effects and 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 then he'll give the notes. So I have to sort of pre-plan the roadmap of where we're going to go, and then he'll tell me you're going the wrong way, you're going the right way. But that's how he gives notes. He can't listen to anything unless it's completely done, as if it's a tiny mix, a tiny final, really. Um, and that's his, his pattern. It, he wants to think of it as a movie from, all, all, from the very inception of the scene. He wants a, a, a movie. And if it doesn't qualify as a, as a, as a good movie yet, uh, at least he'll have the, the chance to, to start giving notes from the, from the very beginning. And then Dave, you can talk. Um, well, Don started very early on, and then uh, Jay Wilkinson came on. He was also sound designing, and did the two of them did a lot of initial work and like getting things to the picture editors. And for Jim, I came on a bit later, and then it was preparing these scenes that Don's talking about, getting things cut ready, get them over to picture and then build the track in, the, in their Avid with what we had, get to a temp-dub stage when we had a, a length, of, quite a bit of time to work with Jim and really kind of hone where this was going to go. And, uh, that, and then we just built upon that and built upon that until we got to the final mix and, and then started pre-dubs and finals. Yeah, but we made about 100 finals in between. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask about sort of can you kind of walk us through sort of what the mixing process was on the show? Were there, you mentioned temp mixes, were there test screenings, you know, typical kind of test screenings? How many, how many temps did you do? And then, and then how, what was the, what was the process and sort of timeline around the pre-dubs in the final? Uh, I think I've, we did one temp in February and another in March. And then, um, so the first one was the big one. And, and then I think we started pre-dubbing mid-April. And so it was just building on the track. The first temp was quite strong, and, and then we built upon that um, for final. And so when we started pre-dubbing, it was, you know, we were pretty close. We were well built, and then but he hadn't heard what we've what we brought yet, and what more we've added. So that was um, getting him in early on the pre-dub stage, have him walk in and hear hear what we'd done. We. I finished the first reel, and we showed him, uh, brought him in, and played him some clips from reel one. Just, just the sound effects. Sound effects with dialogue, yeah, yeah. temp dialogue and temp music. 
But uh, he heard it, and he loved it, and we knew we were off and running and going the right way. So it was uh, pretty exciting for us. In the beginning, in the beginning, we we were Jim was obsessed with the length of the film. He thought it was too long, and so every day was like, "What can we cut? What can we cut? What can we cut?" And we were like, "Well, this is pretty important, and that's pretty important." And so our first test screening, um, they asked the audience how you know it's too long, right? And they went, "No," and he was like, "Got it. Nothing's coming out." <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the movie is, what, two and a half, 240? No. 212, is it? No, oh, 212. No, it's, it's in the, is it? Yeah, it's, it's around there. Okay, I, I thought it was about yeah. two and a half. But I think I, you're right. You know, I, saw that I, I could have taken another hour. I thought it was just, I was, yeah. I was that invested in the characters, and it was, it's great stuff. That's been, the, I think, the audience reaction all the way through. Um, it seems a bit formidable to, to go in and watch a two-and-a-half-hour movie, but people just want more, which is great. Uh, would you all like to see a scene? Yeah, uh, the first clip that we have is uh, from uh, it's uh, it's the Rilo, the Willow Springs uh, Raceway scene from 1963. So, um, so the two main characters uh, in the film are um, Ken Miles and Carol Shelby, who are, are played by uh, Christian Bale and Matt Damon. So this is this is a scene. Probably is this from Real One? It's from early in the film, um, and and we're kind of establishing their characters and and who they are as as people. Um, uh, at the very beginning of the scene, uh, IRS agents come to uh, Ken Miles' shop, and uh, we, we learn that he's, uh, he's in kind of dire straits financially, uh, so that he's got a lot riding on this. And then, and then we go right into sort of a, this is kind of a preliminary trial race, uh, and, and uh, so you'll get a, this is really sort of the, f um, the, the first sort of time that we see Ken Miles driving. Uh, so you'll get a sense of, uh, of, of, uh, who these two characters are and their interplay with each other and then um, um, the, uh, the, the, the way these guys handle these amazing race sequences. Do you want to say anything before we start about what's, what's the car that Ken's driving? Um, anything we need to set it's that up? It's a Ford Cobra. Okay, and this, Ford and Cobra. this is early on in, in Ken's, um, um, he's not his career, but he's, he's, not a, he's not a known name really at this point. He's doing small circuits and... Uh, and we're just establishing the dynamic between Matt Damon and Christian Bale. Uh, we haven't gotten into any of the big corporation deals with, with Ford or Ferrari at this point in the film. Great. Let's, uh, let's roll the first clip.
Does it make you want to watch more? <laughs> it's really extraordinary work. Um, there's a lot of racing in this movie. <laughs> there is. Uh, we're going to show some scenes from the very famous Le Mans race a little bit later. But how of the the the, the running length of the film, um, I, I feel like there's a good at least 30 or 40 minutes of the movie that is in race sequences, especially the Le Mans scene at the, at the end. is that's a, that's a big part of the last third of the movie. Yeah, Le Mans is about 45 minutes. Le Mans sequence is 45 minutes long. No, I think it's longer than 25. Yeah. I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to go with Don on this one. <laughs> How do you build a race car sequence that's, that's that long and keep it interesting well it is 24 hours <laughs> <laughs> but no i mean but for building a you know you're making a movie building a, a movie sequence for an audience which is race car driving how do you modulate and how do you how do you approach it and keep it interesting for a good length of time well that the the sequence that we're talking about at the end of the at the end of the film which is the uh, you know what everything's building up to the main le mans race is really about four acts uh, as you as you start to d dissect it, and we had to spend an awful lot of time going through. Like in that sequence, there there was no music going on apart from the little internal moment. Um, but in the in the large forty five minute sequence, we had to sort of break it down into where where do we need the excitement to occur, um, both musically and from the effects standpoint. And when does the race become emotional and, and, not, and hopefully not boring? Um, be, you know, obviously at the beginning of the race, there's uh, everyone's full on, huge cars, huge music, it's very exciting, people trying to get into the lead. But as the race evolves, we get sort of 10 hours into a 24 hour race, you can't keep that level of excitement up. It just becomes incredibly boring for the audience and, and tedious to listen to. So. We had to really pick our moments, Dave and I, uh, in the final, to weave the music in and out and see where we're going to um, take over with emotion, or whether where we're going to take over with pure racing, um, and and just lead the audience into the the uh, feelings that Jim wanted to uh, portray, while all all the same at the same time, hopefully making it uh, build from the beginning of the race to the end to a peak. Uh, certainly emotionally. Um, well, it's obvious that the, you know, there's a lot of racing, there's a lot of car sounds and all the rest and excitement in the film, which is great. There's also an underlying character development and um, uh, story about people that, that carries the film through from top to bottom. And kudos to Jim for, for, for writing that and to, to allowing that to happen. Um, so we took a long time, is I guess the, long, the short answer, we took a long time going through sequences, taking out music, taking out effects, recompo recomposing music, um, going with emotion or going with raw effects um, to try and shape that in the final. Well, there's a wonderful moment in the scene that we just showed um, where I think part of what you're talking about too is you have to modulate, right? You have to play with the dynamic range. And there's that, that, that really lovely moment um, when you're really in the thick of the race and things are heating up and then you almost pull most of the effects away. You go very sort of internal into Christian Bale's head and you're, I'm hearing, I'm hearing his breath really present through his nostrils. And I love sound design that does that sort of like, that puts me into the emotional experience of the character. And the movie's full of moments like that. Yeah, and that one's a little bit odd, out of context for you all now, but it relates to an earlier scene in the film and uh, hopefully makes sense when you see the film in context. The, the funny thing is that Christian saw, he came into the cutting room and he saw that scene 
And he went crazy. He said, "That's we need that, more of that. And Jim goes, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we, uh, what was, what? So did you do an ADR breathing session with uh, Christian Bale, just through his nostrils? Oh, he's great. He's so good at breathing. <laughs> well, we ended up putting that internal moment into other scenes in the film. So that wasn't actually... Part of the original conception for the, that one was those, uh, but you found more moments. But he during. said, "Like that—that's a great—that's a great thing." He said, "We should do more," and Jim went, "Yes, we should do more," and we did do more. Yeah. Uh, Don, can you talk a little bit about? Uh, I mean, what must have been just the monumental challenge of of building, like you know, putting together the car sounds in the library for for the film. Well, I have to give uh, my secret weapon uh, credit. Jay Wilkinson got on early and tackled the cars. and um, But I knew from the beginning that we had to get the real cars. I mean, Jay was doing a fantastic job of selling the race, but I knew if we didn't get a GT40, if we didn't get a Ferrari P3, we'd be, uh, we'd be uh, remiss. Well, because you know there are people who will know <laughs> I'm waiting for them. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for them to come around an alley and say that wasn't a GT40. It was. This one was. But we we uh, looked for GT40s around the, the world, and we found all the GT40s, and I think we contacted as many as we could. And the funny thing is that if you own a $30 million car, you don't want people to record it and drive it around a racetrack. We have men climbing all over it with microphones. You don't You don't want that. So a lot of people said no, but we did find a guy in Ohio who built his own GT40 out of real GT40 parts, and um, actually Ford came and inspected it and authorized it as a legitimate GT40 and gave it a serial number. Really? Yeah. It's That's amazing. Bolted on his door, and um, he let us record that. So we got our GT40. We got the. It, it was very, very authentic, and so that made us really happy. And then we, you know, then we found a, a Ferrari. We we couldn't find the real Ferrari. Uh, we found a pretty close Ferrari. We found a '59 Testarossa uh, V12, and we recorded that. And we had to do that in Florida, because even though the guy owned it in, in Georgia, the ordinances in Georgia wouldn't let him race it because it was too loud. So we, <laughs> and we went great. We went that car. So we took it down to Florida and we recorded it there. So those are the two, the two main cars. And I knew that once we got those cars, um, we had the authority to actually say these are real cars. What was your, what was your secret sauce? How did you mic them? How did you get those recordings? Uh, we used one mic. It's just, just one mic. So, no, I don't know. Um, <laughs> go ahead, Dave. Uh, John Fasal was the location yeah. recorder, and he went out and recorded. And the Eric Potter, and Eric, Eric Potter, right? And they mic'd the cars. They had mics on transaxles. They had mics inside. Um, there was all stationary mics outside on the on the track. And so, the cars were quite wide. I had sixteen channels of sound for the car interior or and similarly for buy. So it was really they did a great job. It was all really well recorded and uh, gave us lots to work with. Yeah. Was this a Dolby Atmos mix from the beginning? You guys knew yeah, what you were gonna do? Yeah, it was at native Atmos. Uh, and so how did that what did that allow you to do um, working natively in Atmos in terms of, 
you know, like the directionality of the car buys is so stunning in the, in the film. Well, mostly, I mean, it was when we were working in, in my room, it's 7-1. So I'm just thinking what's going to go in Atmos when I'm, when I'm working. And so I'll have all my, my sessions built, and then I'll have Atmos tracks down at the bottom. And when I get on the stage, when we got to Fox, it was um, then I could take things that I wanted to put in the Atmos track. So kind of, as we were going through, I'm thinking what I'm going to use in Atmos, what I'll utilize it for, so. So you were working primarily like with seven one beds and then you would, you would, you would keep a certain number of, of, uh, of effects uh, that you wanted to use as objects and when you got to the stage you would start to move those around? Yeah, I mean, they were, they were used in a seven one bed as well. And now I know where what this is going to sound like in seven one as well when we do the fold down. But knowing I would, you know, tag it or color code it that I'm going to put these in the, in Atmos object tracks, and I used it for crowds and winds and rain, um, things that went over our heads. You know. Yeah, we flew a plane through the theater. It's <laughs> a great sequence. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> it sounded just like that. No, and, and then musically, that clip, obviously, the, I think I just realized the clips that we're playing today don't have a lot of music in them. But um, <laughs> it's not that we the, have anything against music. No, or no, no. <laughs> uh, but no. we're really we're really proud to show off the uh, actually, the actually, no, sound design actually there's music all over this next one. Yeah. OK, I'll take it back. But what I was trying to say was uh, with the music, I had great flexibility from from uh, Marco Batrami and Buck Sanders, who were the uh, composers. And then through Ted Kaplan, who was our editor music editor, um, I got every, all the instruments completely separate and was able to go through uh, pre-mixes that I did at my studio where I put everything into 5.1 format but kept everything very, very wide and then took that to the final, spread into a 7.1 bed and then started allocating Atmos as needed. Um, I'm, I'm kind of curious, what, what sort of Atmos work did you do with the music? What, what did you use as objects that you would either, did, uh, did you primarily put things into the overheads or what did you do? It's no, not overheads. I always do a seven one bed. I never do any. Um, I never use the plus two, um, and then anything I use that goes up there, it becomes an object. Um, but it's environmental, um, environmental parts of the recording of the score, um, and delays. Primarily delays. Uh, I, I do a lot of. There's a lot of singular guitar work in the in the score, where there's two guitars playing off of each other, which I kept principally towards the left and principally towards the right as a general template. And then I did a lot of diagonal uh, across the room um, panning of delays and, and reverb treatments for each one of those so that we're not just going front to back but we're actually moving across the room and utilize the objects for those also. And that just gives it, opens it up and gives it a sense of size and space. A sense of size, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of curious, uh, were there any usable production tracks that came in during the race car sequence. I can, I can imagine that, that, you know, that, that must have been really horrible conditions for the, produ the poor production sound mixer. Well, uh, we had to take away all the production of the cars because they were all kits. Um, they all had Mazda engines or Chevy engines or something like that. And although they were big engines, they weren't the right engine. So with that, when those came out, we had to fill everything back in. And sometimes the dialogue left. But a lot of times the dialogue was cleaned up pretty well by using some uh, isotope. Um, and Harrison. And, and Harrison. And a guy, we hired a guy to do it. <laughs> he was good. 
He's got some skills. Yeah. But the cars, the cars had to be completely built from the ground up. And, um, and also, what's interesting is that uh, this was shot in the desert. This is not shot in Le Mans. And there was no crowds. And so when you see the film, you'll see 100,000 people there. They were all added later. And uh, it's just beautiful to see what they can do visually. And so we had to, we had to make that. And so what you're describing, it's almost like a little bit like an animated film. Like you, once you took those, the kit car sounds out, you really had very little. Yeah, it was a dream come true for me. Yeah, because I got it was like a blank slate. I mean, you couldn't use the cars. And then, of course, the shots of them inside the car, that was just a rig, you know, and there was all this kind of going on. I'm good at I'm good at sound, right? (laughs) And uh, so everything had to be everything had to be cleaned up. Although I will say we, we took an awful lot to, Polly McKinnon was the dialogue editor, and between her and Don, um, we, we managed to take pretty much all the production that was in any way usable yes. into the final mix yes. as extracts uh, with ADR as alternatives. And once we got the, da- the balance of the, di- of the music and the, um, and the effects in the bigger races, uh, quite a bit, a surprisingly a large amount of the production was able to be used well, if, she actually if the took- performance was better. Sorry. She actually took some engines out of the dialogue, which was unbelievable. What she could—I mean, this really loud engine she pulled out—amazing. She did a great job. Kudos to her. Yeah, Yeah. that's amazing. Uh, Let's take a look at the second clip. Uh, So this is um, this is—we're kind of in the middle of the of the Le Mans race at this point in the clip. Um, It's uh, uh, like like uh, 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 Paul was saying, this is a—it's a twenty-four hour car race, and we're we're deep into it. It's the middle of the night, and of course, um, just to for some added acoustic fun, it's in a terrible rainstorm. Uh, So you got a car race in the middle of the night in a big rainstorm, and. Carol Shelby does a little shenanigans with the Ferrari's uh, stopwatches. Do, do, we, do we need to set any, anything up? Well, what, what you're about that? to see is true. These are these are little known facts that we uh, once Jim learned about what Carl, what what um, Carol Shelby would do in the pit. He included it in the film, so this is a great sort of reveal. There you go. Let's take a look at this uh, second clip. I'd love to hear from you about some of the challenges of putting that sequence together. Um, that crash of the sign going over was tough. <laughs> we could never get it right for Jim. He was, he, something was, we started before that there was a sign there. 
the car went, goes off and the sign was supposed to be there. And so it, it hit the hay bales and it hits something in the, and it's like, he needed something hard there. And we kept tackling and kept tackling. And then we, the visual came and it just, we, we went after that for a while until he was ultimately happy, I hope. <laughs> you never know what, what's going to be the, the, you know, the, the thing that is the troublesome element that takes a long time to come together. That's especially with, with Jim, I find, because some things I would think that would be big, big things he's great with, and then it'll be little things that, you know, I've got to figure out what he's after to really. I think he was really like pushing for the wood of the sign through the engines and the rain and the hay. And, you know, he'll pick certain sounds that he just wants to promote. And uh, it's hard sometimes. I, I imagine that's the case. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear, um, you know, that was a pretty, that, you know, the music is driving uh, pretty, you know, it's, 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 it's pretty present in that scene. And obviously it's just wall to wall sound effects as well. So, um, can you talk a little bit about like how did you guys work together on the stage? Like, did you, were you slapping each other's hands away from the faders, and and what's you know how do you, how do you, how do you decide which is going to step forward in any given moment, the music or the sound effects? Well, little known to Dave, I had a master fader for the effects, so I was just pulling it. Okay. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, on your phone. Obviously, we have to. The, the The music in that sequence was very very rhythmic. It had an awful lot of low end in the in the bass pattern and the drum pattern. And yet Dave had, you know, the, the roar of the engines. He had all the suspension issues going on. He had the, the transience of the foot pedals coming in and out. Um, I ended up having to, th throughout that section, well, we, ju we just worked very closely together with it. But it, from a music standpoint, I had to pull out an awful lot of the low-end rhythm in that sequence and sort of trick the audience into thinking the music's still going by using the top end of the guitars and the hi-hat and such. Um, while the the engine roars were were taking that that frequency spectrum, uh, there was just no point competing. And and likewise, he would let go when there was a melodic pattern that needed to come through. And and for me too, I'm going against always working against Paul's music, and then trying to hit key things. So it's not just engine all the time. I want to hear the rain and the wheel well, like just things that are quick in and out that can play with the music and not just be loud and big against music with engine all the time. So it was kind of working that way and until it feels, until it's feeling really good. Well, that kind of detail and finesse, I mean, it just takes time, right? It's, so I'm, I'm curious if you like how much, you know, you were sort of, you were building your tracks in 7.1 kind of pre-mixing even before you got to the, to the stage, but like how much time did you pre-mix, uh, before you guys got to the final stage and did you have access to the music during that? period at all or it was just going to be a surprise for you when you got on no i had access was the temp music for spotting purposes but the score came in when we finaled that and we had um three weeks to pre-dub on in the big stage of, on the ford stage um were you guys pre-dubbing at the same time on two separate stages or were you okay yeah i was mixing in my studio you were you were dialogue pre, you were pre-dubbing dialogue and yeah. you were pre-dubbing effects at the first for three weeks on your own before you came to the final mix stage but i mean it sounds like a long time but it is a two and a half hour movie and there's a lot going on and then the final mix was how long uh one day six weeks i think well with with all one of the reviews day. and all of the print masters and all of the deliverables it was six weeks so take a couple of weeks off of that for deliverables it's about a month but we didn't we um aaron downing the post supervisor at fox on the film uh was insistent on just trying to keep people civilized so we didn't do long days 
um, which was fan- fantastic. We didn't really do weekends. It was Monday to Friday, and it was about 8 o'clock, sort of the latest. Um, I did, prior, prior to the final, I did two weeks on Dialogue ADR and Group, and then five days on the music before I got to the final. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, there's, that's great because, I mean, the, it's, there's so much material in here and it tends to be a little loud. It's, it's good to, you know, have those normal work days just to prevent burnout yeah, and fatigue. Yeah, we were really grateful for that. Yeah, it helped. Yeah. And for, um, go ahead. I was just going to say, for a scene like that, too, the great thing was that we would have the time alone to, to do it and build the track. Like, we'd do a faders up run with Jim in the morning present the reel and then we would go and work he would go away we would work on it get it to a place where we're close and comfortable and then finesse when he come would come back and an interesting thing is they're always adding rain that's uh no that's visually added um so uh there was points where we went really heavy with rain visually and so when we matched it sonically um jim didn't like it he just it was eating up everything and so they reduce the amount of rain in the picture that really that's yeah. this is twice a day we've heard this yeah. that they actually changed the picture to make the sound better yeah i think this is a trend that we should embrace <laughs> i agree <laughs> that's great <laughs> uh should we look at the last clip sure so we're, we're we're going a little bit out of order. This uh, this chronologically in the film, this last clip happens before the Le Mans race. Um, this is um, I, I want to set this up properly. This is my favorite scene in the movie. Um, so uh, they're embarking on this huge project, uh, for the Ford Corporation, to build this car that will compete at Le Mans and compete against the the Ferraris who have had a tight grip on this race for a long, long, long time. So they're well into the process. Uh, uh, but there's a little bit of an internal power struggle happening between Carol Shelby and some executives at the Ford company. So uh, they're kind of coming out to LAX to where Shelby and his team are building the car uh, to kind of do a power play, and uh, and Carol Shelby surprises them and uh, gives uh, Mr. Ford a uh, an impromptu ride in his very expensive race car and kind of gives him the ride of his life. So let's take a look at this scene. Just to hold me right there, and you take my hand. Oh, God! Sat on my nuts. We're gonna build the next one for comfort, don't you worry. Open the door. Sorry, sir, if you just give me a moment. Open the door! You ready? The name on the middle of that steering wheel should tell you that I was born ready, Shelby. Hit it. Attaboy. Great, great performance by Tracy Letts as four. Definitely. Um, I think that, you know, uh, that scene also gives you a sense of like, 
you know, it's when we talk about this movie, it's really easy to focus on. Oh, let's talk about the big race car scenes and like, but there's great character and it's great story and it's great storytelling and 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 sound serves an, an amazing part of that process. Um, so uh, talk a little bit about putting that, you know, because obviously you want to you want the audience to have the same experience that Mr. Ford is having in that moment. So how do you put the sound together for that? A lot of a lot of low end, obviously. Well, first you, first you take away the the production car, and then you add the real car, um, and then you just you know crank it to eleven. <laughs> um, and I think part of the powerful thing about that is when it stops, you get the sense of what it really was. Um, and we're gr- really fortunate that that when we s- turned off the engine, um, the airport was still there, but it was not, uh, it, it was just air, basically. There's a great, I'm not sure if anyone noticed, but at the very end when Ford is crying, um, that is all production, obviously, and, and right. we try to enhance and keep with every single one of his little subs, but back deep in the background, there's a single engine sort of Piper Cherokee flying around and that was live production that happened to be happening at the time um and it's just a wonderful little moment of this the scale of this massive monster of a car down to a tiny little engine that's going over the top as he's crying and realizing how difficult it is to control this machine so it's a great moment i love that moment jim says yeah take that plane and lower it you know raise it or it's like no it's just right there jim we didn't add it We, we actually tried to remove it yeah. For a while, and it was just—it was ridiculous yeah. because the the crying was so wonderful. To it was hold so perfect. On to. Yeah. The irony is that that air that Piper airplane probably had less ho- horsepower than the car that they were driving. <laughs> yes. <on>. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before we open up for questions, any 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 f- fun final stories that you want to tell about the the about the mix process or working with James? It's always an adventure working with James. Um, he's a, he's a joy to work with. He truly is. He's so smart. He's uh, so about storytelling. Um, he challenges all these different genres from, you know, Logan to Walk the Line to 310 to Yuma to this film. Uh, he does everyone's um, with such finesse. And uh, he's, he's truly interested in sound, more than interested. He's, he's passionate about sound, and it's, it's just great to work with him. He's a director who seems to know how to use sound really as a, as a storytelling tool. I didn't even congratulate you guys on Logan, but Logan is one of my, 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 really my favorite superhero movie from the past 10 years or so. Great. Uh, let's open up and, say, and take some questions. Mike, do you have, the, you have a microphone? Any questions for these guys? Hey, guys. Thanks for coming out. Uh, I'm curious with the, all the amount of cars you guys had on the show uh, and the amount of recording, how would you guys manage editorial-wise and track layout uh, and being able to keep things interesting and from editorial to mix. Track layout. I kept, um, I had four pre-dubs for the GT40, and they were all 16 channels wide, four for the Ferraris. And then I had incidental cars, um, tires and suspension were all separate, and um, crashes separate design of pre-dubs separate. So I had like 26 effects pre-dubs. And so that gave me, that was really helpful for me for separation wise. And I had uh, like 24 to 30 channels of props and 24 channels of feet. So I just kept my groups separate. Does that answer your question? 
Hey, how's it going, guys? Congrats on a great sounding film. Uh, so my question was, um, obviously, you owe some amount of realism to the the cars that you talked about in the in the edit and in the design process. I'm wondering uh, if you, at different points in the in the film, decided to enhance any of that with either elements from cars that weren't specific to those, or whether you used like non-diegetic type design to enhance, to beef things up or make it more uh, sort of larger than life? Or did you pretty much try to, as a rule, stick to the raw stuff that you guys got from Eric and John? Well, I'm going to say that this is pretty much a real deal thing. I mean, like in any movie, you're going to augment certain areas that don't match the picture because you don't, when you're recording, you don't know how it's going to be cut in. Um, there was a point where we were using other cars in the temps, um, yeah, very early on, and they and they were great, but uh, Jim kept asking for more and more and more, and I kept saying, well, when we get the real cars, then you can ask for more and more and more, because this is, we're asking for the wrong more at the moment, so... Yeah, all the cars running as you know for the GT40 and the Ferrari. That that that's the cars. There, yeah. Some kind sometimes on the buys and things we would enhance them just to for impact. But yeah. it's the cars running by and large for the most part. And the, the good news was that they those engines were dramatic and big enough on their own that they didn't need a lot of help. Yeah. The only the only issue was we really weren't allowed to take the cars onto a track and run them at 220 miles an hour. Because uh, A, the driver uh, was the owner and he wouldn't do it, and B, we didn't have a three-mile track to do it. So part of that was uh, trickery, you know, just to make it seem like it was going that speed. But they're the, they're the engines, for sure. Um, I'm curious about, like, how did you translate, especially in the first clip, like, it really felt like the car was far away, and then, like, it just had a lot of depth to it. How did you like translate that sound like in the mixing stage? Um, I, if it was in a long shot, we had exterior miking on cars, so it was it was probably used from perspective, and then I'd use some reverb and delays to kind of put some space in, around us. But trying to use mic positions that were would be applicable to where it was geographically on the track. That's, that's important because there's only really so far that you can go taking a close mic object and trying to give the illusion that it's way far away. It's really, it's really helpful to have that very variation in the miking positions when you're, when you're recording to have. Um, do you guys uh, deal with ear fatigue, like long scenes of um, motors and all that? Do you discuss that with Jim and how do you handle it? You're talking about ear fatigue, like from the audience. Like we don't want to exhaust exactly. the audience as they're going through the film. Exactly, like using silence or mixing trickery. <laughs> do, do you mean when we're mixing during, during days of mixing, or do you mean as an audience watches the film? Sorry. Yeah, for the audience. For the audience. Um, well, I think. Well, in terms of the mix itself, the mixed days, um, as I mentioned, we you know we purposely try to keep them to normal days and not go you know 15 hours a day. But also, we'll we'll mix sequences in in dim, um, and we'll bring the levels down. And, and Dave and I try to maintain a certain peak in a film. Um, don't don't try to go you know to what the technology is allowing us to do. 
Um, and then I, I think for the, from the audience perspective, it, it's what we were talking about earlier in terms of uh, creating highs and lows within the, the emotion and the arc of the whole film. Um, a lot of that is to do with the, the pace of the picture editing so that you get sequences that are full on in your face and then we're into an office or a dialogue scene or a quieter moment. Um, but then when it is full on for a long period of time, we're, we're trying very hard to to weave in and out of effects and music especially so that we um, can carry the emotion more than just a flat out furious car race at all times because you just couldn't watch that. It's too, it's too much. Even when they're, we're racing, we're telling a story. So we're very plot heavy even on just cars trying to beat each other in a race. There's a story going on that we're ever mindful of. Well, and one of the things that we, I, didn't, I didn't mention this before, but one of the things I think... Um, I really hand to you guys uh, about this movie is these are these are they're, they're long racing sequences, but I never I never lost the geography. I knew exactly where I was. I knew which car I was in. I knew you know you guys did a really great job of of guiding the audience through that experience. Um, and part of that is the editors the editors did a great job. So you know we're we're really grateful to them for that. Uh, as far as the car onboards went, um, you know, you had all these mic angles and were you trying to follow perspective when mixing, you know, from the intake or from the muffler, everything following camera angles, or are you trying to get a nice kind of overall mix character of each car and trying to kind of follow that through and how much of that was in the editing process and how much of that was just having availability to mix, you know, at the final, um, it was always going for the sound of the car, mostly, and what felt right for where we were. Um, I had all the mics, so it was a matter of deciding what I wanted to use where and, and what I wanted to lean on. Um, that was done more editorially than, um, than on the mix stage. I was kind of, I felt like I was pretty much there by the time I got to the mix stage, and then if I wanted to push something, I knew where to go for it. We've got time for one more question. Um, the film obviously already sounds amazing and different than a lot of other you know, race car films that we've seen throughout our lifetime. What, in your guys' opinion, on this film makes it different than all the you know, other dozens and dozens of race car films that we've seen in the last few decades? <laughs> um, I, uh, Go into? Did you purposely go into it thinking, okay, we're going to try something different, try not to sound like every other race car film, or did that just kind of like naturally evolve into that? I'm going to give credit to our director who did not want to make a race movie per se. Uh, when you ask him what this movie is about, he said it's about two men and their friendship and the struggle they had against uh, the uh, corporate structure that was trying to uh, control their lives. Um, oh, and there's also cars in it, uh, and I think that's how he approached the whole thing, so that when we actually do a race, it's in co it's co context, and it, we know why they're racing, we know who they're racing, we know what, what it means to the characters, and, and I think he brought that sensibility, a mindful sensibility to us whenever we were doing any race, race scenes. Yeah, I, I would say, um, you know, for me, the main difference is, is a lot of other sort of racing movies. You can kind of tell that the characters were kind of an afterthought. Like, it's really just about how do, how do we, how do, let's get to the next racing sequence. But that's, it's very different with Ford versus Ferrari. These are really great characters. And obviously, as you can tell, 
there are no finer actors like Christian Bale and Matt Damon are amazing in the film and as well as the supporting uh, actors as well. Um, so that's all the time that we have. I want to thank these guys for coming out today and talking to us about Ford versus Ferrari. Thank you. So thanks for sticking around. This is going to be part two of our conversation on Ford versus Ferrari. I'm here with production sound mixer Steve Morrow, who thanks is for nominated for an Academy Award in the best sound mixing category. And you, uh, this, is the, this is the fifth season that we've done on this special Dolby Institute Soundworks Collection Oscar podcast. And this is your third appearance. Third, yeah. After getting nominated for uh, La La Land uh, and then again for A Star is Born. Yep. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank nice you. to have you back. Good to be back. So how did you get involved with uh, Ford vs. Ferrari? How did you get on this movie? Uh, Ford vs. Ferrari was a movie that came along. Uh, the, the James Mangold's post-production supervisor, Aaron Downing, uh, who I think heads post-production at 20th Fox, uh, him and I have been friends for 20 years, and um, and we've always tried to hook up together on a movie together, yeah. and uh, this one was finally the one that worked out. We had James and I were gonna do a movie, The Deep Blue Goodbye, maybe three or four years ago, and it, it got canceled last minute due to an actor being injured, and right. so it was just five days before we were gonna start shooting, it just got canned. So, Ford versus for I mean, obviously this movie, the the, the signature set piece is about the race car, yeah. you know, the, the, the big Le Mans race and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So you know that this is coming, you get the script, like what's your process for kind of getting ready and prepping to, to, to do production sound mixing on a, on a movie yeah, like this? I think, I think the biggest prep is just realizing the circumstances you're gonna be in. I think realizing that this is a, a race car movie and that the cars are gonna be loud and there's dialogue in the race cars uh, while it's driving in and even though you know, there's some trickery in movie making where it might not be the actual GT40 that you're filming in. It's still going to be a pod car. It's still going to be powered by a, a loud, you know, fast engine. And you're going to have to be mobile and you're going to have to be able to record the, the, the high decibel range that those cars have. And I, so reading that, I, you know, immediately started researching, okay, well, what's the loudest that, you know, how loud could they possibly be? Yeah, how be? loud could it be? And it, it's kind of like 140 decibels, and it's like, okay, you know, you start looking at your microphones, and you realize none of them go up that loud, and so right. you start researching, and you start looking into what mic is going to hold up in that in that range. And I, and I landed on a DPA, I want to say it's a 4066, but it's basically, it'll go up to 156 decibels. Um, Are you serious? Yeah, but it's, it, which is amazing for loud sounds, but it's terrible for dialogue. Uh-huh. Right, so it's not good. Like I wouldn't say terrible, but it's not the greatest. It's not what it's designed. It's for. not idea. Yeah, it's designed yeah. for super loud. So, in those moments in the cars, we we switch mics, uh, you know, on Christian and and go with that. We actually used it on um, Henry Ford when he's given the big speech to the Ford factory. We use it because we knew he was going to be projecting. It was going to be loud. It was going to be Tracy Letts is a very theatrical actor. Yeah, and he can fill a room with that voice. And so, oh, and he filled that entire factory with that voice, and it was great. And it sounded amazing. And so that mic is made for that loud, high volume. And that's kind of where we started. That was the jumping off point. And okay, how do we, how to record the voices? And then, hey, you know, we can actually use these in the engines as well uh-huh. to just kind of do bonus stuff, you know, just for editorial sake, for, for you know, easy sound that, effects. That came up in our conversation with Don yeah. uh, when, when we had that, that conversation a few weeks ago, which was, and I had never thought about this, with, mm-hmm. you know, the cars looked accurate, but the engines were the wrong engines. Right, totally wrong. Right, right. So they all had to be replaced later on. Yeah, yeah. yeah and we knew it. Uh, you know, to be honest, on day one, 
Jim, you know, like, you know, hey, good to see you. Okay, here's the deal, Steve. This is a race car movie. We're going to have old cars. They're going to be loud. Do the best you can. Don't worry about it. I understand. You know, you don't have to tell me every time there's a loud car. I get it. Okay, great. We'll get the best dialogue we can for you. Yeah. And beyond that, you know, we won't bother you unless it's something critical. Right. And that's kind of how we, you know, we went forward to it. So, it, you know, like in the, the Ferraris in the, in the movie, I think were Volkswagen engines. And, sure. you know, the, these aren't the cars that you need to focus all your energy on recording on set because we're not going to use them. Yeah. Right. In terms of like your mandate was not give me lots of great recordings of these cars because right. we know you know you're not. Right. Right. Yeah. The mandate was <clears throat> get the performance, get the dialogue. Don't worry if there's a loud noise over it. We get it. You know, it's like it's a period film with lots of cameras and lots of, of loud cars. But if, um, but were they able were they able to actually retain some of your production dialogue tracks and the cars if they were replacing all that? Uh, yeah, I think the, the ma- I think the majority of the the tracks were retained. I th- I do think though that once you have an engine that is, you know, say the the I'm trying to think of a good example of of when they would replace it. I mean, it's basically anytime there's a somebody pulls into the pits. Right. If it's if it's a really obnoxiously loud engine. You know they're going to replace the the dialogue in that moment sure. because they want the engine and the car to sound right. Because there's going to be a ton of, yeah. you know, of car guys who are like, who "What's that?" Right, you know. Yeah. But there's there's tricks that the guys can do in post to clean up a little bit and then put the engine on top of it. So not everything is replaced. But yeah, there's yeah, yeah. definitely a, a majority, not I mean, a minority of of dialogue that's not going to survive, and we all know it. Yeah. You know, so it's not it's not a you know a, a process that you are precious with, you just go, okay, this is going to be what it is. I feel like you've carved out some territory as being the, the go-to guy for like very difficult, almost impossible <laughs> kind of situations. Like, I remember stories that you were telling with like La La Land, the yeah. opening sequence on the freeway, and, yeah. you, were, and you, you hid all the playback speakers, and at the same time you were yeah, recording miles. Of yeah, this was just amazing. And then the stories that you were telling from *Stars Born* about, you know, Bradley Cooper and 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 just having having a like ninety seconds to capture some performance yeah. at Glastonbury or, or yeah. you know Coachella or Stagecoach or whatever whatever it was. So you you really like, I, I attract a technical. <laughs> I think I attract you know I I try not to over overthink it. So I'm not overthinking these these jobs. But I'm trying to make it. Yeah as usable as possible, and somehow I attract just more of a technical, challenging movie. So what was it? What was the big the big challenge for you? I mean, obviously there's the race car stuff, but was that... Was right. That, the, the race car stuff, you know, is more of a something to get over. Like, it, it's going to be noisy. Yeah. How do we get around that? I think the technical side of this was always being ready. You know, there, there'll be scenes where there's two actors listed as talking, you know, uh, Matt Damon and Christian Bale, they're going to have a conversation. Well, there's nine other actors surrounding them. They're stunt guys, but they're all, you know, they can all talk. They all have their their SAG cards. So what we would do is we made sure that, okay, well, Christian and Matt get mic'd. Everybody gets mic'd. If they're, they're, you know, if they're allowed to talk. You want to capture it. We're going to capture it, and they're probably going to say something. Right. Because the way Jim works is is he'll see the first take, and then he'll he'll love what he sees, and he'll add a little bit. He'll tweak a little bit. He'll Mm -hmm. change it. And you never want to be the department goes. Oh wait, you're, uh, he's going to talk now. Okay, let me let me oh, fix yeah, that. Give it me was, ten minutes while you're yeah, it's like that. even if you're fast at thirty seconds, you're wasting a lot of time every day if you're doing that every day. So we kind of jumped in, knowing that that was a potential. And, and from day one, we're like, okay, anybody that can talk is going to talk. Let's mic them all. Let's yeah. track them all. And that was kind of something we went towards on um, the front runner with Jason Reitman. It was. Right. 21 people in every scene, all talking, all ad-libbing. 
and you just have to be prepared for it. And as long as everybody's mic is like recorded, a Robert Altman kind of. Night, it was. It was yeah. Robert Altman on crack. <laughs> if you see the movie, it's like, yeah. it's you know, all that sound was just there on set, and they didn't re-record anything in the movie, yeah. and they used most of it as backgrounds. Interesting. You know, which is is kind of wild that, to record that, but. So we kind of treated that the same way in this film. It was, you know, 10, 12, 14 tracks of just everybody. Anybody that can that can do it. Yeah. You said we. Who's on your team? Uh, it's Craig Dollinger and Brian Mendoza on this one. Uh, Craig and I have gone back for 20 years now. Uh, Brian comes and goes, depending on... He, right now he's on the Orville. Right. So, you know, he's... You know, because we go out of town. He doesn't come out of town with us because the productions don't light it. So, yeah. So, you know, as a utility guy, you have to find that. Yeah. Find that path in town. So, what's your so? Are, are these guys are all on radio mics, or and, and you're combining that with booms, or kind of how do you approach this stuff? Um, this movie was it was probably ninety percent radio mics. Um, the way Faden uh, Papa Michael, you know, with the way his cinematography was, with multiple cameras, wides, tights, everything, just to capture that moment. Because sometimes the light is perfect for ten for ten minutes. You know, as it, you see the movie, there's a ton of sunset shots. Sure, there's a lot of golden hours. There's a lot of golden hour, and it's beautiful. And you're also, it's one of those things you don't want to get in the way. And so, everybody's always mic'd, and then you boom what you can if you need to. But there's a lot of noise, a lot of wind, a lot of race cars. A well, lot and of, you, you had know. really noisy locations, like the yeah. interior that the interior of that hangar where they were building the cars yeah. must have been. It's Ontario Airport. Must have I been mean, acoustically very challenging for you. Yeah, well, that's, so that's, so that's a big hangar at the airport. Yeah. at a live airport. Yeah, so it's there's a, planes going over constantly. Yeah, it's, uh, Amazon's taking off every every five minutes wow. with an airplane, and yeah, no, that's a, that's a real airport, um, Ontario. The the Le Mans Pits was uh, Aqua Dulce Airport. Um, they built the Le Mans pits at an airport. Yeah, just, well, they needed the just, runway just to, for the speed. Just to, just to make it difficult for you. <laughs> yeah, luckily they, there was no planes landing. They oh, would okay. they would have hit us, but <laughs> but uh, no, they needed it for the speed. Ah, uh, you know, because okay. you needed to be able to get up to 100 plus miles an hour so and then be able to coast. Away. Yeah, yeah, so you need a long straightaway. That's amazing. But yeah, all those locations, what they had in common was wind. It was it was a windy, windy movie. Oh, sure. You know, when we shot middle of summer, and so it was 110 degrees with 30, 40 mile an hour winds. I mean, the the opening race, you know, where he bashes his his which trunk where, open. Where Christian Bale's character is kind of proving himself, right? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and yeah. that was it's hard to see, but every once in a while you can see a flag, you know, like an American flag on a rooftop, and it's just straight. You know, and it's like. So what do you, you do know, in that circumstance? You. Uh, you do the best you can. I mean, we we Christian was great. We could mess with him almost every other take to try to move his mic, to try to adjust it. You know, you don't want to put so much, uh, you know, wind and and wind protection on it that you're just muffling the sound. Right. So there's a there's a a, a balance. But there there are takes where you just go, okay, come on, no wind, no wind. Okay, perfect. You know, that was great. And and um, there are takes where you get hit with the wind. It, it happens, but you you do the best in in protecting the mic and and burying it as deep as you can without it just destroying their voice. Yeah. Um, and we were successful at that throughout that movie. You know, and and then the the guys in post were able to really, you know, the dialogue editor is magic. Right? Sure. I mean, they're able to really clean it up and 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 fix a lot of the 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 issues that you have that you can't you have no control over on set. Um, but yeah, that movie was just uh, uh, it was really a, a practice in wind protection, you know, because we were outdoors and it was windy the entire. And movie. if it's not windy, you're in a car that's moving fast, and there's going to be a lot of air moving around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that wasn't too bad actually, because it has windshields, and you know, there, there's only so much wind that you can have in a car. But yeah, it was going to be loud. 
Did you hide in the car with your uh, with your with your mixer? Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> no. Actually, they had a pod car, and so there's a stunt driver in a little pod on top of the roof, essentially, and uh, it's just the inside of the the GT40 and Christian and a couple remote head cameras, and I put a bag rig and strapped it down with a bunch of ratchet straps. And we would broadcast the audio, we would embed the audio into one of the cameras and the camera would feed it to a microwave system and the microwave would send it a half mile or a mile away to Video Village where we all were. Wow. Because once the car goes and it's going 100 miles sure, an hour, it's, it's pretty much gone within <laughs> 10 seconds, you know, and range-wise of context, it's, it's going to be gone. So we embedded into that and then everybody had, you know, we'd open up a speaker at the village and you could watch the scene unfold and as long as they had an image which they did yeah. you know because it was a microwave system that they had the the specialty guys in there so you were microwaving back but were you recording at the video village or was that that was a little recorder that was in the car with a, a recorder in the car okay. that we had outputs to the camera and embedded but we would bring it back we wouldn't record it back because as soon as the if the video glitched out so would the audio so mm. but it was which was okay you know but but you couldn't have that on the recording so the recording went with the car that's amazing yeah did you dream of being a production sound mixer when you were a little kid growing up? I don't think so. No? I don't. I don't know if anybody dreams of being a production sound <laughs> mixer when they when they're. I think I was probably in love with movies since before I can remember being in love with movies. But from the age of eight, I was like, "This is what I'm doing. I'm making movies." Yeah. So I think I think you know, when you're eight years old, and this was you know, thirty six years ago or so. I think it's like a Spielberg movie, right. you know, E.T., all those movies where you're just like, it, you know, the, the world is open in this cinematic universe. It's just, you know, it kind of just attracts that, that creative part of you. So that's kind of what I wanted to do, just get into film any way I could. Right. And then getting into sound for me was really fun because you get to be on set, right. you get to watch the movie being made, you get to hear it better than anybody, and you get to participate in a way that, you know, other departments don't. That's right. In the final product. Yeah. So, to me, it's just like kind of a golden you spot. Get to, you know, you get to hang out with Christian Bale and Matt Damon yeah. and the actors, right? So, I have a funny story about Christian Bale. This is a good story. It happened two days ago. So, we got nominated on on Monday morning. Right. And I get a I get a text out of the blue saying, you know, hey, uh, you know, congratulations on your nomination. You know, well-deserved. Congratulations, mate. This is Christian. And I'm looking at my phone going, thank you, Christian who? Did you really? Because like, I don't know. <laughs> Christian Bale's not texting me on a daily you basis. Are, you and Christian Bale aren't really texting. No, text I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't have his number saved in my phone. Yeah. Uh, Christian, yeah. And, and it took about a minute, and he responded, Ken Miles, mate. Great job. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good, thanks. <laughs> you know, That's send a nice awesome. thank you back. But it was like, Christian, you know, like nobody, you know, Christian doesn't text me. But he was, uh, <laughs> it was really sweet, really nice of him to do. So you do have Christian's number now? Uh, I have somebody's number. <laughs> but, <laughs> Maybe yeah. his texting assistant. Yeah, his texting, his texting number. Yeah. Well, so what was your path? How did you, how did you get into production uh, sound? Well, so for me, my path was, okay, I was in Seattle. That's where I grew up, you know, like the high school years. And out of high school, I went to a community college there to take some film classes. I just wanted to figure out how to make movies and how to make short films. And all the the sound on all my shorts were terrible. Of course. I mean, it was just like, well, this is terrible. Sound, how do I make this better? Sound on student short films is always terrible. Right, it's terrible. So I, I took a sound class and I learned, okay, you hold the boom, you plug it in, here's how, here's how it all works. And I started doing that for my projects, for other people's projects, and the professor... Yeah, that's how you get to be the sound guy. Exactly, that's how you become the sound guy. And so the, the professor said, hey, try to get a job on a local movie 
And here's a film hotline for the Washington State Film Hotline. And back then they were making movies in, up in the Northwest before they realized they just go a few more miles to Canada. It was cheaper. But so they would make movies there and, and, and it was script supervisor, craft service, or boom operator for the three positions. And I went, well, I, don't, I know what craft service does. I don't know what a script supervisor does, but I can boom. Yeah. And I bugged them and I harassed them for, for weeks. And I said, I'll work for free. Just, just get me on set. I'll work for free. I'll work for free. And uh, sure enough, they hire me. And what was the, the movie? Uh, where the air is cool and dark. Huh. It was about a uh, a logger who moved to New York and moved back addicted to heroin. So we were in the logging, like, you know, he goes back to the hometown. It's a logging town. And uh, it was interesting. It was just rained on us the entire time. And we were outside and it was miserable. What, but, makes, what makes a good boom operator besides staying out of the shot? Well, I think, I think a good personality on set. I, I mean, he's really the one who's interacting with the the camera operators and the actors and the cinematographers. They have to know how to to radio mic somebody quick, but also effectively. I mean, they're just they need to be a good communicator and and just a nice person because they are your ambassador, right? You know, on on set, you know, and they they if they don't have a good attitude or if they're not good people, you, you don't get much love from the rest of the crew, you know, because there's there's going to be a hundred people on set yeah. that are there for the image. That's right. Make a person wardrobe. Set deck, lighting, everybody's there for the image, which is great. But there's only three of us for sound. And if you can't make friends, then nobody's going to help you. <laughs> you know? And you need help. And you need help. I mean, everything can mess you up. A bag of chips that an actor's given versus, you know, some other item that they could have instead. You know, right. you need like people who are, you know, aware of it. But, it, you know, it's easy not to, it's easy just to get tunnel vision in your own department. You know, sure. We all do it. So having a good boom operator that can really communicate with everybody is, is key. So tell me a little bit about your process. So you, we were talking about prep earlier. When yep. you get a script and you start to break down, what are you looking for? What, do you, what kind of notes are you making to yourself? What, how are you thinking ahead? Uh, it depends on the film. If it's a musical, I, I think, okay, from scene to scene, I think, okay, well, what equipment do I think I need? Do I have everything that I need? Did, at this point in my career, I have everything You've for a musical a and right i have everything so it's like you know okay what do i make sure you know so i'm i'm going through a script to see what new toys what new equipment do you need for this movie to make it to make it work some movies like uh, front runner where it was all just dialogue based i started counting i'm like oh there's 22 actors here right. listed you know and then call the director and say hey when these actors are listed you're going to have them talk cuz they're not scripted there's only two people scripted but there's 22 people in this scene no anytime there's somebody in the scene i want them all to talk i'm going to give them a little booklet they're going to really? they're going to know so what's happening so i knew that was coming so I, you start counting your radio mics and go oh i need seven more you know right. i need to have 22 on that day so that's kind of what you that's what my process is is just breaking it down going okay, what do i need to accomplish the movie in the right way i think a star is born I probably didn't make any money on the movie because I spent it all on equipment up front, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, here's, your, here's how much money we have for your rental. And I went, I, went oh, I think I need 60 grand worth of gear just to make this work. Yeah. But it's not a matter of, you know, do I need to make money on every single movie? It's how do I do the best job possible right. for that story? Right. And I think, you know, because the money comes and goes and, it, you know, projects come and go, but you're, the quality of work will stay or it won't. Yeah. You know, and so the, the goal is never to... It, for me, it's never to just do the bare minimum. I want to do as much as possible. Yeah, you know, to make the movie better. Tell me about the like the tech scouting process when you, are, you know, when you go on those with the director. Usually, the DP is there, and mm -hmm. you know, various department heads. What do you? What do you? I mean, obviously, you're listening for. Is this a terrible location for sound? But what? Yeah. What, what? 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 Tell me about that process. Yeah, I think the by the time the sound mixers on the tech scout, 
location is picked, everything is set. So the only thing you really have control over is, you know, you, you, your best friend is the location manager at that point. Because mm -hmm. you're not going to go to the director and say, this is terrible, we can't shoot here. I mean, that's never going to happen. Right. So your, your best scenario is to go to location manager and say, hey, you know, there's this air conditioning unit just above the set. Can that be turned off? Well, it kind <clears> of <throat> runs the whole building. Okay, is there, is there a way that we can turn that off and give air to the rest of the building? You know, there's certain things that you can do that, that make your life easier on the day of shooting uh, just by asking in the tech scout way in advance. Right. Um, a lot of it's air conditioning. A lot of it's like, hey, that vending machine doesn't need to be on. And, and you know, refrigerating the Cokes that we're never going to see on camera. Right. Can we turn that off when we're shooting? And 90% of the time it's yes, no problem. Because sure. you know, that's what locations does, right? Um, and every once in a while you're at a, you know, you'll be at a hospital and like, hey, can we turn that air conditioning? Well, it turns off the whole wing and we can't do that because there's the pediatric wing or whatever. <laughs> and you go, okay, totally understand. So when you show up on the day and there's the rumbling, yeah. it's not something you have to address again because you already know the answer. Right. So those are the positive things where you can just kind of move on and, and work your way around it. Uh, so that's kind of what you look for, you know, when you're locationing, when you're location scouting or, or tech sure. scouting, you know, you kind of look and see what it is or, you know, does the, the AD department need, you know, speakers everywhere so they can cue people through, you know, a voice of God system, right. anything. So you're looking at just what do you need to accomplish it? Because once you're there, it, the location is locked in. There's nothing, you know. I, yeah. I've had Jason Reitman ask me, you know, what do you think about this? Is this going to mess us up? Huh. Um, you know, because he's he's, he's a very tuned in for sound. he's very tuned into sound, and and I don't think there's been a time where they've picked a location where it was going to be bad for sound. It was just there was adjustments you had to make. Sure, but you know. For the most part, you know, you tend not to pick lower budget movies. Pick worse locations because it's cheaper, right? Closer to the airports, <laughs> louder locations. It's just cheaper to film there. Um, but you know, and that's probably when you need the most help. Right. But uh, but yeah, once it's that point, you just figure out what you can do to make it the best scenario. So I remember when we talked about A Star Is Born, you were you were you were I think you were talking about one of your favorite days was. Uh, the 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 day that you guys shot the scene with Lady Gaga singing a cappella in the uh, in the the parking lot at the supermarket. Yeah, it was, tell me what, what what was your favorite day on uh, on Ford versus Ferrari? Hmm. Even though Lady Gaga's not in the field. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When she came out in the field, um, <laughs> I think that it's two different it's two different movies. I think Ford versus Ferrari was kind of an exciting movie because. Uh, certainly the cinematography looked incredible, even on a monitor. I mean, it was just one of these movies that just looked you like a movie cool. from from day one. I mean, there was no question whether this was going to be um, an amazing movie. I think there there are fun days when Matt Damon is flying the plane, right. you know, where you're just, it's hysterical, you know, because, you know, the plane's on the ground and they're, they're playing along, but you just know that's going to be a funny scene, you yeah. know. Um, I'm thinking about the uh, the scene with Tracy Letts and Matt Damon in the car when he's giving him. Oh a ride yeah, around. you know that's going to be just. Oh, you're, you're dying because yeah. you're like, this is incredible. You know, sure. for one, he's having a hard time getting in the car. <laughs> you know, then he gets in the car and then they're like, let's hit it. You know, and it's just, uh, I mean, it's a classic thing when they're fighting Christian Bale and Matt Damon fighting on the on the on the in the park. Right. You know, in the park, that little um, curb was rubber. So in case they hit the curb, you know, it's not a piece of concrete. Yeah, they, they built it. They replaced the curb with they a They replaced the curb with a rubber curb <laughs> so that, you know, if they really got into it and they were really fighting, they weren't really going yeah. <laughs> to kill each other. But it was an incredible scene. I mean, these guys were really going for it. There's a really funny moment in that scene mm -hmm. where I think it's Matt Damon. He yeah. Picks up, he picks up a, like, 
like a, a can, can good uh-huh. and he's like and he's like yeah i'm not gonna do yeah it. I'm i should gonna do, it. <laughs> do some bread instead you know because it's that moment where it's like i want to kill him but i don't really want to kill him you yeah. know but these are things where it's never scripted you right. just they're doing it and they're just it's just that a, a f- ad lib moment he just yeah those are ad lib. i mean look it could have been one of those moments where jim right. said here here's what you do but it's not scripted like sure, he picks sure, up a sure. can and decides bread is better it's, yeah. it's never scripted <laughs> like that so it's probably this moment where jim and him and you they know christian they all they work it out but it's just like you know, those are golden moments where you just get to watch this performance, and it's it's kind of a fun. Those are those fun days where it's just like you know, you just get to be a kid and watch these great, you know, these great actors doing their doing what they do best. For an audience member, I think one of the great pleasures of that movie is watching those two movie stars. Like they're at the top of their game, and they're yeah. just you can t- they're just doing great work, and they it's it seems effortless in a way. Yeah, I mean, on set it felt very effortless. I mean, Christian was. Ken Miles the entire time we were shooting. Right. I mean, I never saw him come out of that character. And him and his son were magical like in too. Like sort of in, in a sort of a method way? Like, like in a method way, yeah. I mean, it, you know, I don't know if Christian Bale is known for being a method actor, but in that movie, he in, embodied that character the entire time. And him and his son had a really fun relationship. I mean, when, when Miles pulls up after that first race and says, hey, jump in, let's go, mm-hmm. That was an ad lib moment. Really? It's not scripted. So the kid jumped in and they start singing that song as they drive away. That's not scripted. That's just something they came up with. That, really? that it was, you know, it's a it's a British kids movie or kids show from from the the era, but they both knew it and they both went for it and and the two of them playing off each other was incredible too. That actor, uh, Noah No Jupe. Jupe. Yeah. yeah, he's just amazing. He's incredible. Wonderful. We we yeah. uh, we supported a movie uh, that he did called Honey Boy. Honey Boy, yeah. Yeah, you know, he played yeah. It was incredible in that movie. Yeah. I mean it's like what is that? He's a really what can he not do? It was really yeah. Yeah, and, and it was so much fun watching that dynamic between yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and him and yeah, the two of them just at, and him and Matt Damon too. I mean Christian Bale and Matt Damon were just going for it and just I mean, each one of them brought their A game every single day. It was really fun to watch. And Jim would always, you know, throughout the day, would always make little suggestions to, for everybody, every actor, and make the every time, you know, every take would would tweak something, make it, and it would always be better. Yeah. Which you never really see with every director. Some directors will tweak it, and you go, oh, that wasn't as great, you know. Really. But Jim, every suggestion was that much better on the next take. Yeah, which is amazing. You you were saying earlier that he uh, he really thinks fast. Jim is Process, fast. Yeah, processes yeah. information really fast, and yeah. it's quick to kind of make changes. I mean, he's like a he's like an improv comedian, you know, where it's mm-hmm. like they're just how do you how do you think that fast on that on that level of of brain power that often? Which you know, to me is he's got to just be collapse when he gets home. He's yeah. just exhausted, right? But I mean, he's always very quick at thinking. Very fast at you know even if it's a line change or or an idea or something different or something comes up on production where yeah. you know it's unplanned which yeah. happens all the time it's very quick to just not let it derail him and he yeah. just keeps moving forward. Cool. It's it's really fun to watch. All that. Yeah. Well, that's all the questions that I had. Were there any other sort of fun stories from production that you wanted to relate? I mean, it's <laughs> not really. <laughs> No, I mean, it, we had a good time on that movie, and that was a fun set. And um, yeah, I mean, it was it was tough. It was not an easy movie to make. Why it, was it tough? What was particularly tough about this one? I think it's just a it's a big scope movie. Yeah, uh, it's an epic kind of film, but we didn't have hundreds. Of, you know, we didn't have a ton of time to shoot it. I think it was sixty-seven days. Oh, so it was a pretty fast shoot. It was a fast shoot in L.A. Um, and. And I think everybody had their heart in it. Yeah. I think the, the entire crew and, and everybody on production. I mean, the production designer, 
built these amazing sets, you know, that you would just think are there. But I mean, the 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 pits are three stories high, five hundred feet long, and they're they're gorgeous. They're massive, you know, and it's massive, <clears throat> and it's like there was nobody just phoning it in on that movie. But it was hard. It right. was a hard movie because it was it was hot every day, it was windy every day, it was dusty every day. But at the end of the day, it all it all paid off because the and movie it's a is big, complicated movie. It's a big, complicated movie. Yeah, I mean, there's some days where you'd show up and. Honestly, the GT40 was blue, and historically, it's supposed to be white, you know, and Jim would go, guys, it's supposed to be white, you know, and Transpo would run down there, grab the car, and they'd, yep, it's going to be white, you know, and then come back five hours later, and there it is, white. Wow. You know, you're like, I don't know how they did it, because, yeah. you know, there's not, we didn't have 40 of those cars. We had to couple, and they had to go from white to blue to, you know, to whatever it was, and so it was like, how did they do it? <laughs> like, uh-oh. Wow. Well, Steve, thanks for coming in again, your third nomination, uh, I, and, and hopefully we'll see you again on this show at some point. Yeah, uh, thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. All right, thanks for tuning in. This is our conversation on Ford versus Ferrari. Uh, we talked with the uh, post-production sound team earlier, and we just finished up with Steve Morrow, who's the production sound mixer on the film. Congratulations again, and thanks for tuning in.